7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Omicron wave is crashing across Mexico with a public response perhaps greater than at any point in the pandemic. Our correspondent takes stock of the situation in a country that essentially never shut down. And the kerfuffle around Boris Johnson and his alleged boozy lockdown parties got our columnist thinking about work drinks. There are benefits and risks beyond what might happen to the photocopier. We ask how employers should think about a drink. First up, though. Russian troops have been parked on the Ukrainian border for weeks. As more of them pile in, families of both American and Russian diplomatic staff are being pulled out of Ukraine. It's a crescendo of tensions. Yesterday, America put 8,500 troops on heightened alert, ready to deploy. Last night, President Joe Biden projected a sense of unity among NATO countries. I had a very, very, very good meeting, total unanimity with all the European leaders. Today, the leaders of France and Germany will meet to examine possible sanctions on Russia. Tomorrow, negotiators from both will meet with Russian and Ukrainian counterparts to keep the drip-drip of diplomatic efforts going. Elsewhere, though, rhetoric is hardening. Last night, Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, said he would send a whole contingent of the army to the Ukrainian border. It's getting more and more difficult to guess where all of this is going. The Russian military buildup is undoubtedly confusing, but not everyone is on the same page as to what it means. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. Britain and America are increasingly concerned that a big Russian invasion to topple the Ukrainian government is a serious possibility. The French government says that's alarmism and it doesn't see the immediate likelihood of that kind of conflict. And perhaps surprisingly, even the Ukrainian government, which is really desperate to avoid panic in its population, is also playing down the severity of the situation. So an all-out invasion is the worst case. What are the other potential cases, do you think? There's a broad spectrum of options that Vladimir Putin has at his disposal. And that is everything from more psychological, economic, covert pressure on the Ukrainian government, and that's Kiev's real fear, by the way, up to a bigger war in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, which is, of course, the region of Ukraine where Russia supported a separatist insurgency in 2014. Some people think Putin may try and seize a land bridge to Crimea. That would be quite a big military undertaking. It would be several hundred kilometers of land all the way across Ukraine's coastline on the Sea of Azov. 
And all of those things are options short of taking Kiev. And, and coming to the possibility of a full-on invasion, how do you reckon that would play out? What would then happen? A full invasion of Ukraine would be a seismic event for European security. Even for Russia, it would be the most significant fighting it's done since World War II. As we saw world leaders say on Monday night, there would be swift, retributive and unprecedented sanctions, possibly including a technology ban on Russia. That would be a big deal. Russia would respond. We could see disruptions to the Russian gas flow to Europe, which would have big consequences for those economies dependent on Russian energy. We could also see Russian cyber attacks in Europe and America, cyber attacks that could be, I think, quite destructive. The economic impact would be wide-ranging. Commodities like wheat and metals would skyrocket. And I think it would be a catalyzing moment for NATO. Sweden and Finland, who are not members of the alliance, may think harder about joining. Already we have seen America put several thousand troops on high readiness. I think you would see a big military shift to the east of the alliance. And that, again, would amplify tensions with Russia even further than they were already amplified. And what do you suppose Mr. Putin's motivations are here? Why do that with so much at stake? I think we need a psychiatrist to really get inside his head. But what some people say is that this is domestically driven. Putin needs a crisis. He needs a state of constant hostilities with the West, because that is what uh, legitimizes his strongman rule. Don't forget, his regime is increasingly dictatorial at home. He's been locking up opponents, poisoning opponents, suppressing the press, suppressing NGOs. And so the, the argument goes, this kind of constant Cold War and militarization of Europe is necessary for his grip on power. I think there's another view which says that actually the problem is Ukraine and not necessarily Ukrainian membership of NATO, but its defense and security ties with the West and its development as a coherent, functioning democratic state on Russia's doorstep. And I guess the argument goes, if this succeeds, if Ukraine can indeed, with NATO's help, with America's help, with Europe's help, become a less corrupt, more prosperous country, that this would be a bad example for an autocrat in Moscow. But isn't one way for Mr. Putin to get what he wants without the prospect of full-on war, basically to try to install a more pro-Russian government in Ukraine? Britain's government has already said last week that they think Russian spies were grooming particularly Ukrainian politicians to stand in as Ukraine's president after any invasion. I think that's easier said than done. To really topple the government in Kiev, I think that you would probably need to attack Ukraine in force. You possibly might need to besiege Kiev. You might even need to take the capital city. And even once you've done that, my problem with the regime change scenario, Jason, is that how does Russia guarantee that a pro-Russian president stays in office once Russian troops leave? So I think the problem is that forces Russia possibly into an open-ended occupation of the kind that it's trying to avoid. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but I think we should be really clear on the demands of regime change for Russia. This isn't the first time that Russia has done something like this on the notion of open-ended occupations. Uh, how does this situation, for example, compare to the invasion of Crimea in 2014? Well, the invasion of Crimea was a uh, much simpler task. It used very limited numbers of forces. It used unmarked personnel, so it was very deniable. And Crimea is a pretty small place with a pretty pro-Russia population. In military terms, Crimea was a, an easy win for Putin. I don't think it tells us 
anything about the difficulties of a war in Ukraine. What I would say, and I think this is where it is useful to think about Crimea, is that a war might look crazy to us from the outside. But if you look at the Crimean campaign, Putin strengthened NATO's resolve. He catalyzed European defense spending. He incurred heavy sanctions. And yet, if you asked him or you asked the Kremlin today, was it worth it? They would probably say yes. And I think what that tells us is that the Kremlin is willing to pay quite substantial costs if it thinks a geopolitical objective is worth seeking. You say that there's a great deal of uncertainty around this, but in, in poking around in the motivations, what you're saying makes it sound as if invasion is, is more likely. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, said Russia is not going to invade. It's very difficult to see how a ground war other than a big one that essentially topples the government gets Russia in terms of severing Ukraine from the West. And there is a great deal for Vladimir Putin to lose domestically. A real war is going to generate body bags and that's going to have consequences for him. There's a theory that just by muscle flexing, he gets a lot of concessions, he gets a lot of prominence. I don't buy it. So far, the West has rebuffed all his demands. And I just don't see how a few summits is worth all of this. So I completely recognize that there is a lot weighing against a big campaign. But to my mind, Jason, I can't see how Putin backs down easily now. All I see day after day is Russian diplomats taking the off-ramps and dismantling them and throwing them to the side, and Putin piling the pressure up with more troops arriving. It's not something he can do forever. These forces, some of these are from very far away. They're from near North Korea. They can't just sit on the border with Ukraine for six months. He has to make a decision, and I think he has to make a decision by the end of February, if not before then. It's a difficult call to make, but I now think that Putin is driving himself towards a hot war. Shishong, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier this month, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, figured he had just a bit of flu. It wasn't. The president had COVID-19 for the second time. He said it wasn't too bad, just a COVIDcito, or little COVID, fixable with paracetamol and vapo-rub. Estoy tomando paracetamol. It's the kind of relaxed approach that's typified Mexico's federal response to the pandemic, even as the Omicron variant has spread and cases have spiked by a factor of 10 since December. Mexico has had, or is having, a terrible pandemic. Sarah Burke is The Economist's bureau chief for Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean and is based in Mexico City. 
There are an estimated over 600,000 excess deaths since March 2020. And per population, that's higher than Brazil, which has also had a terrible time of it. Demographically, Mexico should do better. It's young, but then again, it's also morbidly obese. And there are lots of those problems that are risk factors for severe illness with COVID, such as diabetes. But most of it is just the federal government's response has been pretty abysmal. How so? What what did or, or didn't the government do? I mean, from more or less the start, the government decided that there would be few restrictions. Some of that's understandable. It's hard in a developing economy to tell everyone to stay at home when people rely on their daily wage for food, for eating, for surviving. But it sort of minimalized the virus, it played it down, denied there would be a problem. There was an emphasis on civic responsibility. I mean, that has worked in some places and some states and some municipalities where there are mayors who send very good messages, such as Mexico City. And mask wearing is actually pretty good, especially in places like that. But interest groups have also had a lot of sway on what stays open and what stays shut. In what sense, what did those restrictions that did take place look like in practice? So when I say there have been few restrictions, gyms and restaurants have mainly, for most of the time, been open. But schools were shut for 17 months from March 2020, which is an awfully long time, especially in a country where there's already lots of inequality. Half the population rely on informal work, and there was not really any support, not from the federal level. I mean, Mexico spent under 1% of GDP, the equivalent on handouts, compared to 9% in Brazil or 4% in India. That meant lots of businesses went bust and nearly 4 million people have fallen into poverty since 2018. Forgive the phrase, it was fairly open season then domestically. What, What about the international element? I mean, that was similar. In some ways, that makes sense. When you talk to experts about borders, they first of all say in general, border closures don't work unless they're complete and absolute and right at the start and you have a zero COVID policy such as New Zealand. So in a sense, if there's already COVID running wild at home, it doesn't really make any difference if you import it as well. So Mexico kept its borders open, but without any restrictions. There was no need to show a test. There was no need now since vaccinations have been around to show a vaccination card. You simply just walk in. Officials say it's hard to shut the borders, and that is true. I mean, in the South, it's very porous. There are lots of migrants passing. In the North, lots of people just cross that border daily to work on the other side. But it's also probably about tourism. Tourism made up before the pandemic, 9% almost of the country's GDP. And in that sense, it sort of works. In 2020, Mexico received a greater percentage of its pre-pandemic visitors than any other big tourist destination. So maybe that wasn't nonsensical given the situation inside Mexico. And you you mentioned that that caveat of if you don't have a zero COVID policy, and and we've spoken on the show recently about China's zero COVID policy and and its feasibility. What you're saying here essentially is, by contrast, the government almost uh, programmatically didn't act. Is is there anything that it, it did do? That's true. And, you know, when you talk to experts, they say, okay, you can decide not to shut your borders, but you have to do other things. You can't just let it run wild. Or, for example, if you can't bring in lots of restrictions, then you have to do a lot of testing, try and support people to stay at home, etc. It didn't do those things. What it did do is it said, let's try and expand hospital capacity. So if people get sick and need a hospital bed, then there'll be one for them. So wards in hospitals were converted. The government purchased ventilators. It contracted more nurses. That definitely helped, but it would have been better to prevent people getting sick and getting to the hospital already, especially as the health system is under pressure already. There was also, like everywhere else, protective clothing lacking at the start of the pandemic, and record numbers of health workers have died. By some estimates, it's more than any other country. And and carrying on from that, what about the vaccination effort? How has that been going? 
Vaccination has gone not badly here. The foreign ministry negotiated with a range of vaccine companies to pre-order ones before we knew which ones would work or not. I mean, that's complicated things because Mexico has been using nine or ten different vaccines, all with their own different ways of storing them, transporting them, the different dosages. But they have got vaccines and Mexico was quite early to start vaccinating and it went quite slowly, but now it's sped up and people are quite keen to get vaccinated. The president got vaccinated live on television and they've done lots of things to try and get people to go. So there's lots of information campaigns, posters around Mexico City where I am. In the queues, they've had lucha libre wrestlers and things to entertain people who might have been feeling a bit nervous about getting the vaccine. So now nearly 60% of the total population has been fully jabbed and that rises to 80% when you get to over 18s. But they're not jabbing children and booster shots, which are now considered necessary for Omicron, are not yet finished either. And at the mention of of Omicron, how much has the danger of that, the arrival of that, changed the way uh, the government or, or the people are thinking about this? Well, what's quite interesting is now a bunch of states and municipalities have sort of struck out on their own. These are some of the ones that were also trying to do their own thing and be a bit more restrictive earlier on in the pandemic. But they're sort of asking in some cases for vaccine passes or negative tests to go into indoor venues. In one area near Mexico City, there's a fine if you don't wear a face mask now. And then there are a few other things, such as some museums are shut again for a while. People are still wearing masks. So it's quite interesting that the one that causes almost the mildest illness as far as we know, is the one that's getting the biggest reaction. In some ways, that makes sense. It could spread like wildfire, and we know that a certain percentage are going to end in hospitals, so it could overwhelm the hospitals. And so given all of that, what's your guess on on how bad Omicron will be for Mexico with its already terrible track record? It's hard to tell. You know, it obviously causes milder illness, but it's early days. The deaths lag. Hospitalizations are rising, not horrifically, but they are rising. And just anecdotally, everyone I know has COVID. I have both my kids at home because their schools, their classes have COVID. So I think it's going to sweep through. How much damage it does remains to be seen. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Suitcases full of booze. An office collection to buy a wine fridge. Prosecco Tuesdays and Wine Time Fridays. It all sounds like a work environment where you could really loosen your tie, right? What it really is, though, is a seemingly bottomless brunch of stories about the work culture surrounding Britain's Prime Minister. There have been a series of revelations about partying and drinking in Number 10 Downing Street, home of Boris Johnson, and that has put his job on the line. Andrew Palmer writes Bartleby, The Economist's column on work and management but it also raises some wider questions about whether drinking and the office go together. Well, in a lot of cases, though, drinking and the office is a bit of harmless fun. It doesn't interfere with work. I mean, what do the data say about boozing on the job? You're right. I mean, in moderation, as most things, drinking and work can go together. 
but some of the data are worrying. Drinking and safety are not great bedfellows. Around one in four industrial accidents around the world can be attributed to drugs or alcohol. Having drink available in the office or having a culture of going to the pub after work can lead to addiction. There is research that shows that norms which encourage workplace drinking can predict alcohol problems. And then there's an effect of drinking on non-drinkers. So as simple as feeling excluded if everyone is off having a great time drinking, but also inappropriate behaviour. So there's a survey which shows that a sixth of employees in Norway, for example, have suffered negative consequences from drinkers around them. And that includes things from unwanted sexual advances to verbal abuse and even physical abuse on occasion. So in the face of those risks and those effects, what are employers to do? Well, some employers just reach for a ban. They say that alcohol should not be in the workplace. And one example in Britain is Lloyd's of London, which is a very historic insurance marketplace long associated with a drinking culture. In 2017, stopped its own employees from drinking between the hours of 9am and 5pm. And then subsequently, in 2019, they stopped people who were under the influence of alcohol from entering their building. So that's one way to go, to just clamp down on alcohol use. But that's one way that attacks sort of one element of it. I mean, a lot of the drinking that goes on having to do with work doesn't necessarily happen at work. Yeah, totally right. So how you enforce this is an issue, particularly, as you say, when lots of drinking happens after hours. You know, you've got consenting adults deciding to go to the pub. What's an employer involved in those kind of decision making? But also, you know, because of the pandemic, the boundaries between office and work have got much, much blurrier. So when you're working at home late at night, holding a glass of wine, does that mean you're drinking on the job? I think you should be let off, Jason, but uh, some employers might think differently. Well, and, you know, there are some people for whom a little bit of a drink kind of, you know, opens the mind, uh, releases some creativity. Since we've talked about the risks, there are some benefits. Yeah, there are. You know, salespeople who can't wine and dine their clients might be less effective. Some of the kind of social aspects of the office, leaving dues office parties, would be a lot less fun if everyone's just drinking lemonade. And there is some research to suggest that a certain level of intoxication can help creativity. Now, this is a very self-serving argument, but there is a reason why, at The Economist, wine does occasionally flow. Tapping out a column with a glass of wine can sometimes be easier. So given this balance then of risks and benefits and the ultimate difficulties with bans outright, what are managers to do? What are the prescriptions here? Letting people have a drink so long as it doesn't impair their productivity, and that's inside the workplace as well as outside it, seems right. But the liberal argument also implies the choice has to go both ways. So feeling like you're bullied or badgering colleagues to have a drink when they don't want to is no good either. And there are some cultures where boozing is a big part of it, South Korea, for example, that's also illiberal. And I think the other thing to say is that employers can normalize restraint, right? Alcohol can be addictive. So not having it there in quantities all of the time, that's a way for employers to normalize a sort of a restrained attitude to something which is, after all, addictive. Andrew, thanks very much for your time. And when the time is right later, and in moderation, I should say, cheers. Cheers, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.